welcome to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited, where we'll cover one of the many reported cases of reincarnation so we can bring the discussion out into the light about what happens to our souls after death. But before we go too much further, I'd like to thank Raphael Crux for allowing us to use his music from the freepd.com public domain music site. Today's case is so well known that I almost feel I don't need to introduce it. In 2006, James Lineker's case went viral when it first broke on a documentary on primetime. Since then, it's been covered extensively. And if you ask anyone about reincarnation, the first question you usually get is, do you know the James Lineker case? Well, today we begin a complete multi-episode coverage of the case, and we are fortunate enough to have Bruce Lineker himself join us to give us his account of what happened and to hear him talk about the two quests that he found himself embarking on. Come on this amazing journey with me now as we welcome Bruce. Hi, Bruce. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, Glad to be here. I really feel like I hardly need to introduce you because James's case is just so well known, but I really appreciate the chance for you to speak to me today because it is such an amazing case. And it's all started for you as a bit of an epic journey, didn't it, in May 2000 when James was about two years old? Yeah, it was in early 2000. That's correct. There was a lot going on in your life. You'd actually just sort of had changes in jobs and you'd moved to a new town and you were settling in and Andrea was kind of looking after James. You were trying to sort of get work and and everything else up and happening. James started sort of exhibiting some interesting little anomalies, didn't he? They went for a walk one day and found something at the Hobby Lobby, didn't they? Yeah, she was uh, Andrea. You know, we had just moved in, so she went to Hobby Lobby to get some things to help decorate the house. They have dried flowers and all kinds of vases and artwork and stuff like that. And he was being a typical two-year-old, animated, wanting to climb out of the carriage and stuff like that. So they were waiting to check out, and they had some kind of bin, little bin of toys or something. And she grabbed something that was a little airplane and handed it to him. She said, oh, look, it has a bomb on it. His comment to her was, that's not a bomb, it's a drop tank. Wow, that's amazing, isn't it? And when that happened, he was no more than two years old. He was two on April 10th, 2000. He would have been, he was two years old. And it was either before that or just after that, then he started getting night terrors, didn't he? Night terrors, uh, yeah, frequent, four or five, at least four or five nights a week. He was always waking us up and of course Andrea would go down the hall and comfort him or get him back to sleep there were a few times where I got up and he was just thrashing in bed like he was fighting for his life and then he started to articulate what was happening that he was in an airplane crashing in the water and he and the little man couldn't get out he'd make a motion with his arms like he was trying to push something off of him it wasn't a normal dream it was an absolutely emotional wrought, riveting thing wasn't it yes he was just thrashing in bed, thrashing around in bed. And he's always had a bit of a fascination with with planes as a, as a general thing, but he started to tell you what he was going through, didn't he? He started to describe the, the, the night terror to you. Yeah, there were, you know, there's a little man, an airplane that shot in the engine, a little man that crashed, the plane crashed in the water, and a little man can't get out. As he got a little bit older, he was a little bit more articulate, and then he would also as opposed to when he was coming up, waking up from a nightmare or, or a dream, you know, when you get in that dreamy state, he started to talk about things and started to get a little bit more detailed. He also started to just provide details about 
who shot his plane down. That happened with a visit that my ex-sister-in-law had to the house in mid in the midsummer, just as just that after we moved in. And he said, "Well, what happened to your plane?" He said, "It got shot." Well, who shot your plane? Um, the Japanese. And she said, "Well, how did you know it was the Japanese?" And he said, "The big red sun." Now he was two. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> This is, this is not the kind of thing that was on Teletubbies, okay? Exactly. For a two-year-old child to even know the symbol of a Japanese army, like, I mean, that's mind-blowing. That's right. He'd always yeah. sort of exhibited this interest in planes. There wasn't just the, the night terrors happening. There were other things as well. And Andrea yeah. noticed he started sort of this ritual when he, she used to buckle him into his car seat. You put your seatbelt on, you, you draw your hand across your body, and then he would go, it was like he was, he'd take his both hands and kind of, lift them up in front of him like he was putting something on his head. And it wasn't until we went to a air show when I think it was in 2001 or maybe 2003, I'm not sure when it was, but there was a static display of an aircraft and people could get in it and sit down. And I had a camera with me, but I wasn't focusing on that. And I heard Andrea saying, oh my God, that's what it is. He had put the helm, the, the earphones of the, that had been sitting on the dash of the aircraft cockpit and he put it on over his head, and she said, "That's exactly what he was doing. It was he was putting a headset on." Uh, now I don't have the boat a video of that, but I have them shortly thereafter. There's a video. The video I was taking contains the information where he's sitting at the controls of the aircraft, just jumping around like a little jumping bean. He was just so excited about being in the cockpit of the aircraft. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? And he and he sort of was very familiar in the aircraft. Well, the he strangest had... thing was his behavior around it. He just walked all around it. He was tugging at it. He crawled underneath it, was looking up under the engine, tugging at some things that had been put onto the aircraft to close up, I guess, ports or something like that. I can't remember what they were, but we were filming uh, an episode that never aired. And the person that was with us was a, a registered pilot and uh, uh Shari Belafonte and uh she was watching the video and she said oh my god he's doing her pre-flight checklist on the airplane oh wow that's amazing you know and I, I, I had no idea I thought what what's he doing crawling around underneath the airplane there were 30 or 40 people around the airplane he was the only person doing that that's amazing, isn't it? And I remember yeah. at one of the air shows, because you went to the air shows a couple of times over the years because James was so interested in the planes and things. Right. And I remember one of the planes he came across had the little hook at the bottom and he knew what it was, didn't he? Yeah, I think that was, yeah, I vaguely remember that. But yes, that's correct. And it was the hook that the planes actually have on them when they fly off a carrier. which Yeah, is... yeah when a plane lands, that hook catches cables and that's what, that's what stops the airplane. Yeah, and he could recognize it. And he actually said, yeah. I wouldn't have even as a child known that planes actually flew off boats. I wouldn't have thought that was possible if you'd asked me right. at four or even, let alone two. And in July of August, around about 2000, because it all sort of started in 2000 and then it sort of slowly evolved, didn't it, really over about six years, something like that? Yeah, yeah. most of, well, the vast majority of what we experienced happened within a couple of years. There were There were a few events that happened later, but but the whole content and context of the story was really pretty much played out by the end of 2002, early 2003. He started talking about life in the military, and he mentioned several times 
things about Corsairs, didn't he? And this started a bit of an elusive search for you because for a long time, this was one of the sticking points. Well, yeah, I guess it came up, well, what kind of plane was it that he flew? And he said a Corsair. And, you know, I, I knew what a Corsair was, but how in the world could he know something? Line up 300 two-year-olds and ask them to name a World War II military aircraft. <laughs> okay, just go ahead and try it. Take a flyer. But then he, he also described the flight characteristics of the aircraft. And I happened to have the pleasure of interviewing at least two people. No, one, two, three people that had been Corsair pilots. And as he described the flight characteristics that were completely accurate because the engine was so large that the torque of the engine wanted to flip the plane over. And then he said, always wanted to, always wanted to turn left. The tires always broke when that plane landed. Corsair had a lot of difficulties landing on aircraft carriers for a bunch of reasons. So the Navy didn't start using it for quite a long time. It was actually the British that figured out how to operate the aircraft off aircraft carrier. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah. And as a parent, especially as like a sort of a, a, a person who's very logic based, it must have been really hard for you to experience this, that your little son was saying these things. Well, it was, um, where could it come from? And, you know, up until August, when the real first bellwether event occurred that involved being able to nail down some hard facts you know it was just a mystery it was baffling and there was no way to to really do anything with it other than listen to what he said you know mm. and he was he was still while all this was all sort of going on while he was giving these little bits of facts he was still going through these night terrors wasn't he and they were quite debilitating yeah. to the family they didn't they they weren't as frequent but yeah they were there were it was still a regular event yeah. In August of 2000, he was being read to in bed one night and he began to talk for the first time when he was awake, didn't he really, about what he'd been seeing rather than just relating the night terrors. I think that was around then, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and the way I would describe it is, you know, when you're going to sleep, you get in kind of a dreamy state. You know, you're not fully awake and you're not fully asleep. Well, at that point, uh, Andre came and got me one night and she said, you got to come and listen to him. He's talking about what happened. And so I went to his bed and I said, well, you know, what's happening? You know, and I said, and I don't know why I did it. I just said, can you tell me where your plane came from? Just took a flyer at it. And he said, a boat. And I was like st startled. I said, a boat? He said, yes, a boat. And I just said, well, gee whiz. Okay. Did the boat have a name? And he said, Natoma. And I said, That's, that sounds like a Japanese name to me. And he looked at me like I was an idiot, if you know what that means. And he said, no, it's an American. And he said it with such force in his voice, yeah. uh, such, de such definition. I said, oh, man. You know? Well, I knew enough about World War II to know that air there were aircraft carriers and planes flew off of boats. So I said, well, you know what I'm going to do? Let me see what I can go to the internet to do. And after, you know, it was at least an hour, an hour and a half of just poking around because back in 2000, the internet isn't what it is now. And um, I finally found this history of a World War II aircraft carrier called USS Natoma Bay, CBE-62. And then as I read the report, 
I just, the hair went up on the back of my neck. I got goosebumps. It described that it fought in the Pacific in World War II against the Japanese and blah, 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 blah. I was just dumbfounded. How could, how could he have this name? How could he even, you know, what are you kidding me? You know, it was really baffling, but I had it in hard print matching what he said. Yeah, well, that's it, isn't it? When you think of it, and and the name Natoma Bay is an extremely uh, adult concept of a name to actually for that's a child right. to pull up. Like you can imagine a child pulling up the victory or the vengeance or the something like right. that, you know. Right. But the that's Natoma true. Bay is is no. doesn't relate to anything heroic or you know like that. So. You know, it, it's interesting how he knew facts that really, I mean, if you'd asked any adult American at the time, mm -hmm. they wouldn't have known of the Natoma Bay. And actually, you could probably ask a hundred Canadian citizens if, if they've ever been to Natoma Bay in their country, and they probably wouldn't even know where it is. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a small bay on the west coast of, of Canada between the United States and Alaska you know the lower 48 at alaska amazing isn't it and and it is actually mm. a name that is used quite a lot in america because in america because when you went searching you found there were motels and quite a few things named after yeah. it, it took and a bit it was of a another uh, yeah there was a, a hotel a lake there was a, a, some kind of geodetic ship some uh, some ship that gets used for surveying the earth or, or the sea bottom um yeah there were just all kinds of stuff and pretty obscure yeah very obscure and as you say at the time the internet was certainly not the the glorious beast it is now it was a lot a lot harder to find information right so i'm stunned you even found it but he also started relating other facts too that could be traceable and one of them would become extremely important and that was when you asked him if he remembered anybody else or names or anything of people from the time yeah, well, yeah, and the way that came up, uh, and, and it wasn't me that asked it at first, well, well, who's the little man in your dream? And he would always say me. Well, if, when you're dreaming, you, yeah, that's who your dreams are about, <laughs> you know? I mean, you're, you're dreaming about yourself doing something in most cases. So um, this is one I was just, it was, well, is there anyone else in your dream? And that's where he said, well, yeah, a man, a guy named Jack. And so, again, I just took a little flyer was that they have another name they have a second name and that's where he gave the name larson and for me at first i thought that that was when I, when i was you know began to realize that someone had died and he was having these memories that's who i thought initially he was talking about that this guy had been killed and he was having dreams and memories about jack larson so you thought, when you say that, you mean you thought James was talking about himself, comma, Jack Larson. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, then about a, well, it was the day after Thanksgiving when he identified when his plane got shot down. It was a book that I had bought for my father for the Battle of Iwo Jima. And it was the day after Thanksgiving. I received it that week. And uh, I was going to give it to my father. My father had been in the Marine Corps right at the very end of World War II. And I was looking at it to just page through it, said, well, gee, maybe if it's, I like it, maybe I'll get one for myself. And he came up and hopped on my lap because we had this ritual of watching cartoons. And I said, well, let's look at this book for a little while. It's a book I'm going to give Poppy. And so I started paging through it and got to this one page that was a print of the island, like a map. 
or a diagram and then a picture of the island itself. And without hesitation, when he saw that picture, he said, Daddy, that's when my plane got shot. And mm. I said, what? You know, well, it's like, a, you know, what, tell me, what did you say? He said, that's when my plane got shot. So when the cartoons went on, uh, I kind of he got preoccupied with that. I got up and I had printed that article about Natoma Bay and I uh, went and grabbed it. And I read through it and found out that the ship supported the Battle of Iwo Jima. And I was just dumbfounded. I was just, what is going on here? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I was just, it still baffles me. It still makes me just stop thinking. I, I agree with you. It's actually, this is the thing with this case is that it is so eerie with the, the knowledge that he has. For, for people to have memories of actual names, even their own name, mm-hmm. like to mm-hmm. know is, is so rare. And for him to right. be able to pinpoint the names of other people yes, and to do yes. it so clearly, usually people can say, oh, I recognise, you know, this person, they're my dad yeah. now or whatever, but yeah. they can't give names. So right. it, it was quite eerie. That led you on then to the fact that you started looking at who got shot down at Iwo Jima, didn't you? Well, you know, I didn't know where to begin looking or what to do, but the first kind of stroke of luck was, well, gee, my father was in a reunion group, the Marine Corps. So I thought, well, maybe there were reunion groups. Maybe there was a reunion group for the ship or however they're organized. And I found information that there was. There was an Otoma Bay Association, and there were four numbers listed of the officers of the association. I started to call them, and I finally got a hold of one guy about, uh, I probably tried for maybe a good week, a little bit longer than that, making calls. A couple of the numbers were disconnected. That's where I got a hold of Leo Pyatt. And like I said, the stroke of luck was, well, can you tell me anything about Iwo Jima after, after we introduced ourselves to each other? And he said, well, sort of. I said, well, what do you mean sort of? And he says, well, I flew 36 missions there. And I said, oh, my goodness gracious. And then, I, you know, we kind of carried on with the conversation. And I finally screwed up the courage to say, well, can you tell me anything about a guy named Jack Larson? Because at that point, I was still thinking that James was talking about Jack Larson, who died. And he says, I remember Jack. He flew off one day and I never saw him again. And uh, you could have poured my brains out of my ears. Matter of fact, Leo brought me back into the phone conversation by saying, hey, are you okay? Are you there? You know, because I was just completely, just completely. uh, Gobsmacked. Yeah, gobsmacked. That's that's the right word. Yep. (laughs) At that point, then I, you know, well, maybe that's who James was talking about, you know, not thinking it was, it was James himself. And then it wasn't, I identified, I found a list of all the men had been killed on aircraft carriers in World War II, but there wasn't anyone with that name. There were Larson's, but there weren't, no, there weren't anyone that looked like it was the right person. And I even wrote to the archives, I think, to try to get information about one or two of the names. But at that point in time, the archives would not give information out to anyone else other than a family member. Mm-hmm. And I think that that had something to do with military pension information and stuff like that. You know. Oh, that makes sense. I haven't thought of that. Yeah, or, yeah. or they just don't want to hand that information out and let somebody else use it for nefarious reasons. And then, um, you know, on this list that I found, that list had 18 names on it of men that had been killed serving aboard Natoma Bay. It didn't give any real information other than that. But one of the men's names was James Houston. 
That was one of the 18 names, and I was intrigued by that, but I had no real information at that point in time about what happened to him. I was able to identify when he was killed or when he went missing, and that further caused some curiosity because it was March 3rd, 1945, which tied into what I understood about Natoma Base supporting the Battle of Iwo Jima. So I was intrigued by it. And then I, you know, I was finally able to get to the first reunion the next year. And that was, you know, I had to wait two years to get to the reunion to get anything that was definitive because up until that, you know, I had nowhere, I had no idea where to go looking for some of this stuff. Mm. Uh, And the interesting thing about James Houston, you found that he was the only pilot who was actually killed in that mission, wasn't he? That's right. As a matter of fact, today, you know, because I thought we were going to be on Zoom, I have a, in, in the materials I sent you, I have a copy of that action report that describes what happened that day. Right. Uh, I even have the box of nine, nine rolls of microfilm. I got those that microfilm from the Natoma Bay Association. In early December 2002, the ship historian sent it to me and said, here, you know, if you can get a copy, go ahead and get a copy. You know, we don't, they're not, they're, they weren't using it for anything. So I, I have that box of nine rolls of microfilm here in my office. I was going to show it to you. Wow. But at the time, also, we should point out that because of the nature of how you were getting your information, the fact that your little son was claiming to have this life, you found it awkward when you first contacted a lot of the veterans, didn't you? You felt felt a bit uncomfortable with telling them the real reason. So that started a bit of a a, a quest in its own right. Right. Well, you know, the first person that I spoke to was Leo Pyatt. And he was the guy that was a he was an airman on in VC-81 which was where Houston flew out of and was killed. And yeah, I was, when I got him on the phone, well, Leo, my two-year-old is telling me about his flying off your ship in another life. (laughs) I would get shortly thereafter is a dial tone. (laughs) You know, (laughs) get out of here, you flake. You know, because I felt like a flake. What, you know, why am I asking these kind of questions about something that is totally baffling me? And so when I, I said, well, I'm very interested in the ship. And, you know, I sounded sincere enough that he gave me a heads up saying, well, we're going to have a reunion and somebody will get a hold of you. And that April 2002 was about when I got the invitation to the reunion from the Natoma Bay Association president, which was fully 18 months after I spoke to Leo. Wow. and there really and it, wasn't much of anything I could do in that period because I didn't know what to, what to look for. I didn't know how this information was put together, you know, how the history was described and everything else. Yeah. And in order to kind of give a reason, because a lot of these old veterans were saying, well, why are you so interested in this? Why are you so interested in this? And in the end, you came up with the, the sort of the small white lie of, oh, well, I'm researching a book. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've become intrigued with what you've done and I want to learn more and, you know, yeah, perhaps I'll write a book about it. Because I think, too, it's important to realise that even for you yourself, you were going through a bit of an epic struggle with all this because you'd never really believed in reincarnation at all, had you? I didn't at, at all. As a matter of fact, we really had a pretty uh, blunt discussion about even putting the word on the title because the first thing is I'm as far as reincarnation is concerned, you know, I believe it now, but my one primary concern was it conjures up too many things that people who don't believe it don't understand, Mm. you know, and it, and I just don't think it, it's in one of those ineffable terms. I I don't really think there's a word 
that describes what we saw mm. and experienced. I, I, you know, we can say it's a reincarnation, but to watch and listen and see his behaviors, and they continued and had such a broad range of, of information, it was, it was just still baffles me. Still, it's still, I find it just incredible. I think that's the thing about this case, and I think that's why it's so important is because for a start, right at the very beginning, before all this started, you had no real clue. You had no interest, which is actually a good thing because right. you ended up sort of going into a great deal of, de- of research on it because you were trying to actually right. prove it wrong initially, right. Right. that there was and, something yeah. else that was going on. That's right. And I knew, you know, I had this intuitive feeling, you know, whatever this is, it's important. One, it's important for me to find out so that I know my son is going to be okay. That's one. And then two, it's just how in the world could something like this occur? And I'm not saying logical, but what is there an acceptable explanation to this? Well, and that's how I I ultimately arrived at believing in it, that, you know, there's nothing really at odds with my Christian faith, because my Christian faith says your soul goes on forever. You know, your, your soul survives death. Well, Beyond that, no one really knows what happens. You know, you, have to, you still have to go in faith. So I, there's nothing inconsistent with phenomena in Christianity. Exactly. I actually always, when people sort of bring this up in the forums and they talk about, well, you know, how this, this is so at odds with my Christian faith. It's, no, it's not actually. When you look about it, um, the Bible says we have an eternal soul. It says mm-hmm. we spend it in heaven. Mm-hmm. Reincarnation belief is an eternal soul but instead we come down. So really all you're arguing about is how long you've got the accommodation on the other side, really. you know. And, we... and when I sign a book, a little note I put in it, it says, nurture your soul for you're on an eternal journey. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's beautiful. That's very true. And it, and it keeps you grounded, doesn't it? It keeps you realizing that the big things that used to really bother you it doesn't, you don't have to stress about stuff because, you know, it's all just stuff that happens and it's a, a little part of it, isn't it, really, in yeah. a long journey. So the, the yep. conversation with Leo Pye had also brought up one other interesting fact that actually kind of made you think that maybe it wasn't true. And that was he he was the first one to sort of tell you that, because James had been so focused on Corsairs, he was the first one mm-hmm. to tell you that Natoma Pay didn't have Corsairs, did they? That's right. He didn't know. He, he, he never experienced and saw anything while he was on the ship about Corsairs. There were essentially two types of aircraft in their squadron. The FM-2 Wildcat, which is the kind of aircraft Houston was in when he was shot down and killed. And then there was the TBM Avenger. And Leo was a radio, I think he was a radio man, member of a three-man crew on, on the TBM Avenger. That was a torpedo bomber. Right. And he told you that the planes that they have on the Corsairs, uh, sorry, on the on the uh, Natoma Bay were, I think, Wildcats and there was another type, wasn't there? The Avengers. Ranger. Avengers, that's what yeah, said. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, right. Yeah. So that was an interesting thing for you to realise because, because at the time you were still trying to prove to yourself that this was real and that seemed to you to be a glaring problem with James's memory at the time. Exactly, yeah. You know, he was hungry. Why would he talk about a course there? That kind of stuck in my mind. So as you're sort of going through all of this and you started talking to the old veterans, you actually also started to feel a sense of not responsibility, but kind of reverence and awe of these amazing men, didn't you? Yeah, I felt like I was among the knights at a round table. You know, here were these men that just did, did these amazing things. 
put their lives on the line. And they were just, I'm sorry, ordinary looking old men, you know. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, when you look at soldiers and what they do in the war, mm-hmm. they often have to make like sacrifices that we, I mean, we've complained about being in lockdown. And when mm-hmm. you think of what they went through in the war and the sacrifices they made, right. it, it makes me a little annoyed because I'm like, you don't really know what it is to suffer. You know? Yep. Yep. I'm 100% with you. So I hold them in reverence. And and they know. did it with such a, a bravery and a stoic, stoic, stoicism. It was like, a, well, I've just got to do this. So I'm just going to do it. That's kind of it. It was, there's no flair to it. You know, I'm not, no big deal. I just went out and did something that I felt I needed to do to help protect yeah. my country and the people that lived in it. And in talking to these pilots and they'd sort of relate the missions, you started to realize just how difficult it was to be a pilot off the carriers and off anywhere, really. I mean, pilots. Absolutely. You know, actually, uh, Jack Larson, he said there was a poster in their flight ready room. He said that flying an aircraft is inherently dangerous. He, he was, he was almost killed on a he was almost killed on a takeoff one day when when you took off in an FM two there was a hand crank. He said you have to crank it twenty eight times to get the landing gear up. And he wow. said I was so focused on the, cranking the landing gear up that I I was going vertical and I almost went into a stall. Holy mac! And he said he, he took his hands off of that thing, and he said he got up to ten thousand feet before he did that. <laughs> before he he wound up the the uh, the landing gear and he said yeah i never took off again doing that i just i just make sure i got to a really good altitude before i bring up the landing gear yeah it's amazing isn't it so mm-hmm. when you look at them and and in talking to these men you'd started off with the kind of the white lie of i'm going to write a book about this right mm-hmm. to them just so that you didn't feel like they wouldn't feel like you were taking it lightly or you were that you were some sort of tire kicker just trying to, you know. Right, right. And I was sincerely interested in what they'd done. I mean, it was the Toma Bay as a ship is one of the most decorated ships in U.S. military history. It participated in virtually every large operation in the war in the Pacific. Uh, Okinawa, Iwo Jima, the invasion of the Philippines. Just It just goes on and on. It's amazing, isn't it? And it kind of gelled in your head that, that you started thinking, I do want to actually record what happened to these men. I really do want to write about what happened to them. That's right. Yep. yep. Yeah. So you started then sort of researching the names of the on the mm-hmm. Toma Bay, didn't you? I think mm-hmm. we started around about now. I think it sort of really kicked in when Andreas picked up the fight because you ended up caught with work. But between the two of you over the over the time, you then started looking at the people who had been on the Natoma Bay, but the ones mm-hmm. who had died right. specifically. Right. So you had, by, by the 10th of April 2001, James turned three, and you mm-hmm. had a pretty good idea by this time of who the men of the Natoma Bay were and of the ones who had passed away. So James got a doll for his birthday, and he called it Billy. Is right. that right? Yeah, I think he, I think the first one he got might have been for his birthday in 2001 or maybe Christmas, either one of the two. And yeah, he named it Billy, uh, which I didn't we didn't think anything of it. Billy's kind of a very common name. And he had some other stuffed animals and he had names for them. So we weren't surprised by the fact that he called it Billy. Thought it was kind of cute. And it had brown hair, this doll, didn't it? Just as a little side. Yeah, note. yeah, yeah. That particular doll had brown hair, yeah. 
Well, and then some months later, he got a second one, and he named it Leon, which really kind of Leon. I know of two people on the planet Earth named Leon, a guy who was a professional boxer back in the 70s, and then a guy that was a high-level official in one of the president's uh, administrations. I think it was Clinton or Bush, a guy named Leon Panetta. Those are the only two people named Leon. I said, where did he get this from? Now, at, now, by that time, that had to be before I went to the first reunion because I was just totally baffled. Leon, where'd you find, where'd you come up with that? That doll had blonde hair. And by that time, I had this list of men who had been killed, but I didn't really associate the names of one of the men on that list, whose name was Leon Connor, with James naming the doll Leon. Because first of all, it's something I didn't never talk to James about. Oh, here's a list of dead people from an aircraft carrier research list, and he's going to remember the name Leon. You know, just doesn't happen that way. Well, he probably uh, wasn't even aware of of the list right. of people who'd passed away. That's right. That's right. You know, then the the third one. By early 2003, we had identified some of the families of the men who had been killed. And in one case, we actually drove to Alabama to meet the ancestors or the descendants of one of the guys, this is Leon Connor. And it wasn't until we went there and we got a color picture of Leon or a picture that showed that Leon had blonde hair. And it was at that point, I, I just, again, got real quiet. It was like, man, this, doll, this guy had blonde hair. James has a blonde doll named Leon. And then the third doll he got for Christmas. And by by that time, I knew a little, quite a bit about the men who had been killed. I actually have kind of a little booklet on each of them because we found the families of, I think, 16 or I think 16 of the 21 men had been killed. And um, I also understood that there was this one guy named Walter Devlin who had uh, red hair. And the only thought I think I thought about that was the guy that I interviewed that described Devlin to me just said, oh, yeah, we used to call him Big Red because he had red hair. He was an Irishman from Queens, New York. And that Christmas, he got the third doll and he named it Walter and the doll had red hair. That was amazing, and, wasn't it? And at, at, in uh, the book, you, you say you actually asked him too. you said. Oh, yeah. I was besides myself because by then, by the time he got that third doll, I knew about these men. I knew what squadrons they had flown in. I had also further fleshed out the fact that there were 21 men. And for instance, Billy Peeler was not on that original list because Billy Peeler was killed while he was not attached to the aircraft carrier. So it wasn't part of the records of the aircraft carrier when he was killed. When James named that doll Walter, I, I just couldn't resist. He was going to bed and I just went in and said, James, I said, why did you name your dolls those three names? And he just didn't hesitate. He said, because they were the three men that greeted me when I went to heaven. And I knew immediately what that meant because each one of these guys had been pilots in the same squadron as Jim Houston and had all been killed before him. Amazing, isn't it? That is, to me, when I read that, was just mind-blowing. To me, that was like... Well, you can't really get better proof than that because 
you know, how does how does he know the names? How does he, does he match the exact colorations three times? Like you could imagine, okay, once might be coincidence, maybe twice could be coincidence, but three times, especially right. when one doll was a redhead. That's right, and then just also just how accurate his statements were. Yes. Yeah, and the fact and the fact that all three men had actually died in the year before James Houston had died. That's right. That's right. The first one was Leon Connor, and I think he was killed on October twenty fifth, nineteen forty four. And the next one was uh, next one was Walter Devlin, and Walter had been killed October twenty sixth, nineteen forty four. And then uh, Billy Peeler was killed on November, oh boy, hold there. I think it was November 18th. It was either November 18th or November 17th, 1944. Amazing. And, and, and Houston was killed March 3rd, 1945. That's just mind-blowing, isn't it? Yeah, quite startling. Yeah. Actually, too, speaking of, James doesn't really sort of talk much about the what we call the intermission period or the period between lives, but he did actually really say something telling to you. I'm going to jump forward for a, fret for a second and then jump back. On October mm -hmm. the 3rd, 2002, Hurricane Lily was approaching Lafayette and the family had to evacuate and it made oh, a hell yes. of a mess. In the middle of the cleanup, he said something interesting to you, didn't he? Yeah, we were cleaning up the yard and we, we had left town for a week and I just, just asked him to come over and sit on my lap. He was playing in the leaves as I was cleaning the yard up and I just picked him up and hugged him. I said, I'm, I sure love you. You're such a good son. And he said, oh, daddy says, I knew you'd be a good daddy when I picked you. And I said, what? You know, again, I got quiet. I got, what, what, when you picked me? Yeah, when I picked you and mommy. And I just got, uh, I'm afraid to ask, you know. What do you mean picked us? Well, well I picked you. Well, well, where were we when you picked us? He said in the big pink hotel in Hawaii. And we had been there celebrating our fifth anniversary in about six weeks before he would have been conceived. Amazing. And we never talked to him about that. Well, why we, would we you? you know? uh, I'm going to talk, talk to my three-year-old about my honeymoon or my... <laughs> From celebration, yeah, sure, okay. <laughs> yeah, go ahead and believe that one. Yeah, yeah, we, we just kind of share everything in the family, you know. Because he did, he got the whole thing, didn't he? He said, "I found you on the beach. You were eating dinner at night." Oh, yep, and that's exactly what we had done. Yeah, and you we were staying set, at a pink hotel on and... Waikiki Beach. Yep. Amazing. That that just blew me away as well when I heard that. And it's amazing how many times kids say that. I think a lot of people say, oh, well, there's not that many people who have memories. But I think the kids actually do, because they often do say things like, oh, when, you know, I remember when I picked you or, you know, I, re I remember when you were the daddy and I was the, and I, when you were the boy and I was the daddy and stuff. It's quite oh, mind blowing, yeah. isn't it? Yep. Yep. Quite amazing. But to jump back to our timeline, so back in on 2001 was around about two shortly after his birthday when James started doing the drawings. Yeah, yeah, he did. Yep. Yeah, he, he started. Yeah, and he did a lot of them. I, I still have about 30 or 40 of them, but he he virtually he had to do at least two or three a week, at least. I mean, there were a lot of them I just, we just threw out, kept some of the more detailed ones. But yeah, yeah, he started and they start, started signing some of them James three which was baffling. You know, what do you mean James three? And I when I asked him, he says, Well, I'm the third James. And at the time when you one of those bombs that he dropped, James three? What do you mean? 
And at the times too, you didn't realise that James Houston was James Houston Jr., did you? When he first started, I had no idea that James Houston was attached to anything or that he was a junior even. Mm. Yeah. I'm not sure what he meant by this. I'd like to run past you in September of 2001, airplane in the sunroom, and he stood up and said, I salute you, I'll never forget. Now, here goes my neck. <laughs> yeah, that, that he said in front of Andrea. And yeah, yeah, he exhibited certain behaviors. And that, that was even, I think it was that day that Andrea was quizzical about what he was doing. And, you know, she asked him, well, is there really a heaven? And he said, yes. You know, well, why do you come back? Well, you can come back if you want to. And one of the most amazing things he ever said, and I'm going to indicate that I've never heard somebody from the clergy say it exactly the way James said it. She said, is, is God a man or a woman? That's what Andrea asked him. And James's answer to her was, God is whomever you need God to be when you need him. Isn't that beautiful? That's, a, that's an incredibly profound statement. Mm. Out of the mouths of babes. Yep. Yeah. And that, that's the thing, isn't it? Like when we, when we look at the accounts of what people see when they have near-death experiences and things, yes. it does seem to be that the image of God, this idea of what God is, there is no actual one hard and cast thing. It, it is what we want to see or we need to see. It's, it seems to be that's how God connects with us. He lets us make him or her or whatever exactly what we need it to be yes yeah. so that we can that's, feel the love because that's the again, thing. Just, you know i mean he was he couldn't have been any more than four years old maybe five when he said that it's amazing isn't it and i'm going to say probably four <sighs> unbelievable yeah the whole thing sort of kept going as you were sort of leading up towards the, the reunion and things. And in April 2002, James turned four and he built a little cockpit mock-up, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Yeah, he had a, one of his old car seats and he, yeah, I actually helped him with a little bit of it. But yeah, he was, that was a, quite an entertaining thing to see him in the closet with the door closed in there making sounds and shoot the Japanese and do this and saying all kinds of stuff. And then he'd just tumble out of the door onto the floor. And he, he actually even rigged, he had a small like book bag thing that he put on his shoulders. And I, uh, I first asked him about it. I said, what is that? He said, oh, that's a parachute. <laughs> that's a parachute. Yeah. Amazing, isn't it? Like he, he had all of the details down. He sort of, he also at the time rigged up like all the little accessories, didn't he? Like, I think he had a little, he'd put like his play school keyboard and all together to make this cockpit so that he had things he could use in the cockpit. Yes, yes, yeah, 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 it was pretty fascinating, yeah, it was pretty fascinating thing. It's interesting, isn't it? So around about now, Shalini Sharma, was a, who was involved with the 2020 documentary that was you were thought at the time would go ahead, but I think at the time this was the one that didn't go ahead. But That's correct. They were spending time sort of talking to James and sort of talking to the family and doing interviews and researching. And she bought a little toy Corsair, didn't she? And that's when he related an interesting fact about that. I think you mentioned earlier about the Corsairs getting flat tires. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, she was sitting at the table or kitchen table and she gave it to him and he just started to rattle on about the plane. Amazing. I've never heard this bit that Andrea very rarely made meatloaf and one day she did and James <laughs> wolfed it. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was quite an event. He was, Oh, it couldn't have been he was about, I'm going to say three, you know, he was a small child and I don't know how much that he, I, I, I want to say he ate half of it, but I, I know it wasn't half of it, but 
I mean, he was eating that stuff like he had been in a, in a starvation camp for six months. <laughs> you know, and I looked at him. I said, James, what are you doing? He said, oh, this is, meatloaf is great. He said, we used to get this on the Toma Bay. <laughs> Another thing that he had a real fascination for, which, which was kind of odd, it's not, he didn't really say anything about being related to Tom, the Toma Bay, but we went out to dinner one time and um, brought up a dessert tray. And the dessert tray had all these kind of colorful desserts on it, you know, and sparklers and all kinds of fancy stuff that made them look attractive. And he said, I want that. It was a piece of plain white New York style cheesecake. It just had no icing on it, no nothing adorning it, no colors, nothing fancy, just a plain white piece of New York style cheesecake. You know, it was, it was pretty fascinating when he picked that. You know, where'd that come from? How could he, how could he, you know, the most nondescript thing on the plate, on the, on the platter. It's interesting, isn't it? Like, and, and he was obviously sort of harking back to what he probably had it on the ship. Yeah, it was just like, or had eaten somewhere else. You know, I can't imagine that they made cheesecake on an aircraft carrier, but, you know, who knows? Well, they probably did. I mean, it's relatively cheap, relatively easy store yeah. as well. So. Yep. But I love this next story too. On the 1st of September 2002, um, you went to Dallas and James was playing with his hunt, cousin Hunter. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And they were playing shooting japs at the, <laughs> which, sorry, anyone who's from Japan, but at the time right. that was the right. terminology. But, yeah. um, well, well, he was at, yeah, he was, there was a, there was a little swimming pool or a swimming pool for one of these community, you know, like a community swimming pool. And he were there and there was a little fountain and had like a two tiers to it. And they were in a top section of the fountain, him and his cousin. And they were waving their arms around and get the, shoot the Japs, shoot the Japs, get the Japs. And so Andrea called them over and said, listen, don't do that. That's embarrassing. She, you, you don't need to, you don't need to worry about that. You don't need to talk like that. And then she said, and anyway, she said, then we won the war. Looked at her like big piece of Hot news just came on the television. They said, we won the war? We won the war? And he just danced around the deck of the swimming pool singing that. We won the war. We won the war. He had his own VJ Day celebration, as you as you make the point. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Like, Which is really interesting because it, it does show that his memories related to the actual life as he was living it. It's not like he's picking up some sort of timeline from somewhere because he, he wasn't aware that when he after he died, the war was won yeah. by the Allies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there are people that have, you know, well, the first thing is in terms of my own belief system, okay, my view on this is that somebody can come along and give me a better explanation about what this is. Like some people have said, yeah, it's a ESP or, you know, whatever, you know, remote viewing or whatever you want to characterize it to be. I said, if somebody can assemble something that is, is so on point and substantiating what happens, I'll vote into it. Okay. <laughs> You know, not because I don't want to believe this, but if, if there's a better explanation out there, what is it? Then this is the soundest explanation. It's our souls go on forever. We don't have the vaguest idea of how all this stuff manifests itself. You can come back if you want to. Well, you know, there's whole schools of thought about soul planning and stuff I've learned since then. 
Mm-hmm. And it's taken me on a different kind of journey, a journey I would have never suspected I'd ever been on. Life does lead us in some funny directions when you think about it, doesn't it? Uh, quite so. Um, it's unbelievable. Uh, yeah. So we'll leave the coverage of the case there for the moment and return soon with the next instalment of this fascinating and complex case. Make sure to tune in next time as there are still many intriguing and compelling facts to uncover. Bruce's encounters with the men of the Natoma Bay and the facts that he uncovered from them are quite simply mind-blowing. Thank you for listening to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. We hope you enjoy this case. If you have any interesting stories about reincarnation or if you can relate your own past life experiences, I'd love to hear about them and I can be contacted through my email at reincarnation at gmail.com or via my Facebook page called Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. If you'd like to support me, I'd be honoured if you would become a Patreon supporter. I don't do extra content at the moment, but your support helps me keep on doing what I love doing and what I hope you love hearing. We'll be back again soon with another episode, but until then, remember you are unique and your life has a purpose.